How would you describe your mother? Edwin Hubble Chafin said, No language can express the power and beauty and heroism and majesty of a mother's love. It shrinks not where man cowers and grows stronger where man faints. And over wastes of worldly fortunes sends the radiance of its quenchless fidelity like a star. Geneva Jordan said a mother is a person who, seeing that there are only four pieces of pie for five people, promptly announces she never did care for pie. Ambrose Bierce put this in the formula of a definition, sweater, noun, garment worn by a child when his or her mother is feeling chilly. Jane Selman said the phrase working mother is redundant. And the Spanish proverb says an ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. Someone said the formative period of building character for eternity is in the nursery. The mother is queen of that realm and sways a scepter more potent than that of kings or priests. Someone else said a Freudian slip is when you say one thing but mean your mother. However eloquently or cleverly or humorously you might say it, it's clear that your mother has left a mark on you. There are certain passages in Scripture that often confuse us. There's one in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it reads this way in verse 14. It says, And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety. That's a little confusing. He says, it's, the, the man was not the first chronologically to sin. It was the woman who was deceived and fell into sin. And then it says, the woman is now saved through childbearing. Now, how do we understand that? Well, in context of the New Testament, we know you're not saved eternally saved from sin through giving birth, otherwise we would be dedicating these children and baptizing the mothers. He's not talking about eternal salvation. What kind of salvation is he talking about? Well, the word save means to be delivered. And in the context, he's talking about being delivered from the stigma of being the one who was first deceived and fell into sin and therefore influence negatively an entire generation of people. He's saying women can be delivered from that stigma by childbearing if they are the kind of mothers who have faith, love, holiness, and propriety. In other words, they can now affect generations to come through childbearing and raising those children. Mothers have great influence. 
a tourist group was going through a European city that had produced a large number of great men, and one of the members of the tour guide asked the guide, how many great men were born in this town? And the tour guide responded, no great men were born in this town, only babies. Only babies. You see, we all come into this world as babies, and then we are shaped by the hand of our mothers. W.L. Caldwell once said, No nation is greater than its mothers, for they are the makers of men. That's a great influence. In fact, let me say something that may sound a little foreign in our society. Motherhood is the highest calling a woman will ever know. When you have finished the course and gone to be with the Lord, your kids will not remember what kind of workout schedule you had. They will not remember how many promotions you got at work. They will not remember how many civic organizations you served in. But they will remember the courage and the strength and the spiritual values that you instilled in them. That's the calling of a mother. Now, how do you fulfill that calling? Well, to answer that this morning, I want you to go with me back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1, a passage that introduces us to a lady by the name of Hannah. The word Hannah means grace. And she is an example of the grace of motherhood. Now, I hear a lot of people say today, you know, it's, it's tough to raise kids today. Well, Hannah could have said that in her day. Because let me just introduce you to the circumstances in her society in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Politically, it was a period of the judges. Now, when we read the book of Judges, we think about Judge Judy. We think about somebody with a robe and a gavel. That's not the kind of judge the judges is talking about. A judge was a deliverer. A judge was a hero. A judge was the real-life avenger. And the problem at this point in time was that there were no judges. The, The last judge was Samson, and Samson was now gone off the scene. And there was nobody to replace him. No judge had risen up. No hero had risen up in Israel. And the Philistines were sitting by and they were threatening to attack. And so politically, it was a very difficult time. It was also a difficult time morally because it was a time of rebellion and depravity. The book of Judges, which just is a few pages before 1 Samuel, ends with this verse, Judges 21-25. In those days... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was loose morals. Everybody just doing what they wanted to do. And then spiritually, it was a time when Israel had grown cold. They were corrupt. In fact, they were so cold and indifferent that God was not even responding to them. God was not even speaking to them. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, And the word of the Lord was rare. In those days. So politically, morally, spiritually, it was a difficult time. 
the nation needed a great leader. And that great leader was about to come on the scene. And that great leader was a man by the name of Samuel. He's one of the greatest men who ever walked the earth. In fact, in Jeremiah 15, 1, God said this, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, I wouldn't change my mind. God puts Samuel right next to Moses as a great man of influence. And so Samuel's about to come on the scene. And Samuel is a great man. But what I want you to notice is that God used a great woman to shape that great man. Samuel was not only the product of the work of God, he was the product of a godly mother. And Hannah gave to the world and gave to her nation the greatest legacy a woman can give, and that is a godly child. Now, how did she do that? Well, I want to see it in three ways this morning. I want to see her husband relationship, her heavenly relationship, and her home relationship. First of all, her husband relationship. Now, this may surprise you, so let me say it slowly. The most important relationship involved in raising a family is not the parent-child relationship. It is the mother-father relationship. Your relationship with your spouse speaks volumes to your kids. You can teach them all kinds of principles, but if they don't see those principles lived out in your relationship with your spouse, they're not going to buy that. You see, as they watch you interact with each other, they are learning about love and forgiveness and compassion and virtue and honesty and integrity. The husband relationship is foundational to the home relationship. And what kind of husband relationship did Hannah have? Well, it wasn't perfect. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a certain man from... And I'll mess these names up. There was a certain man from Ramathame Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. And he was born from certain people. Verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, you think you've got problems. Hannah's situation is not ideal. She is married to a polygamist. Imagine that. But what I want you to notice here is that their relationship had three things going for it. Number one, they shared worship. Look at verse 3. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. That says every year he went up to worship in Shiloh. That doesn't mean he went to church once a year. Men were required in, in, in the Jewish culture to go up three times a year for three festivals. And they went to Shiloh in this case because that's where the ark was. So they, he was going up three times a year, but he was a guy who was worshiping regularly with his family. 
Young ladies, when you are looking to get married, here's the first thing on your priority list. Someone who shares your faith. Someone who bows to the same Lord. Because the fundamental thing in a family is that husband-wife relationship. And the fundamental thing in that husband-wife relationship is, is that it be triangular, that the Lord be at the center of it, and that you worship together. You see, the way you worship is vital. It communicates to your kids. Are you faithful in worshiping together? Are you faithful in making the Lord the priority of your lives? Are you faithful to live out what you say you believe? You see, if you're not walking what you're talking, then your kids will find it easy to discount your faith. They worshiped together. Secondly, they shared love. Look at verse 4. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Elkanah loved Hannah. And the implication is that he didn't love Penina. That's what happens when you have two wives. There isn't enough love to go around. So he loves Hannah. And apparently he married Penina to give him children because Hannah was not able to. And when the family went to offer a sacrifice, it was kind of cool. They went to offer a sacrifice, and they would take the sacrifice, give the sacrifice to the priest. The priest would sacrifice that animal. The priest would take a portion of that meat, and he would give the rest back to the family, and they would go have a feast together, a barbecue. And they would enjoy that. It was a festive time. They came, and they enjoyed a meal together. And we see here that Elkanah's love was not just verbal, It was demonstrated in his honor toward his wife because it says he gave her a double portion. Remember, that's what Joseph did for Benjamin when his brothers came. He gave Benjamin a double portion to show that he honored him. Well, that's what he did for his wife. You can imagine how insecure you as a wife would feel if your husband was calling somebody else wife. So when he came around to give the food, here she is, and he gives her a double portion portion because he loved her. Let me say something to you men today because you're not going to get out of this message. Your wife's security comes from your love. Doesn't come from your bank account. Doesn't come from your fancy house, doesn't come from your new furniture, doesn't come from your boat, doesn't come from your retirement plan. Your wife's security is in your love. And that's what she wants from you more than anything else. And beyond that, let me say this. A child's security comes from the knowledge that mommy loves daddy and daddy loves mommy. 
There is nothing you can give to your kids that's more important to that than them to know the security that mom and dad love each other and they're committed to each other and I can relax in this home. They shared worship. They shared love. Thirdly, they shared feelings. Look at verses 6 and 7. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Whenever they went to the feast, Penina would rub it in. They'd be sitting around and she'd say, have you seen the kids lately? Oh yeah, you don't have any kids. Men are always whining, but they don't know what pain is. Oh yeah, neither do you. She would rub it in when they were together that Hannah had no children. And it caused her to be upset. It caused her to cry. In fact, it caused her not to eat, so she had a double portion and no appetite because Penina was criticizing her. And notice what her husband does. Verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Now, men take note of this. This is really good. He didn't try to give her an immediate answer. He didn't try to give her a quick fix. He asked her questions, and he listened to her. Why are you crying? Why don't you enjoy your big meal? Why are you so sad? You see, when your wife is upset, and I'm still learning this, when your wife is upset, what she wants from you is not answers. What she wants from you is to listen to her heart, to ask questions and listen to her heart. Now, Elkanah did that, but his problem is he didn't listen long enough. So he asked another question at the end of verse 8, and he blew the whole thing. He said, am I not better to you than ten sons? In other words, why would you be sad? You've got me. Mothers, are you leaving a legacy for your kids? Part of it is your relationship to your husband. Shared worship shared love, shared feelings. Second thing that she left as a legacy was her heavenly relationship. Hannah not only had a right relationship with her husband, she had a right relationship with God. And we can pick out six things that characterized her heavenly relationship. Number one, she was a woman of passion. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. And then verse 10, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. Now, what was Hannah so upset about? Why wouldn't she eat? Why was she brokenhearted? Because she wanted a child. But you see, this passion was not selfish, 
selfishly driven. You see, her reason was not to silence the badgering of Penina. Her reasoning was not to fulfill her own needs. She wanted a child because she knew that was God's best. She knew that was God's highest calling for her. She knew that she could give him back to God and shape generations to come. You see, Hannah had a passion for children, and that's what it takes to be a great mother. If you're a reluctant mother, you're probably going to have a difficult time with mothering because it's a tough job. Hannah had a passion for that. Secondly, she was a woman of prayer. Look at verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She had a problem, and she knew where to take her problem. She took it to the Lord. She was a woman of prayer. Psalm 127.3 says, children are a gift of the Lord. She knew that. God is the source of children. I'm going to go to the Lord. Psalm 139 says that God is the one who forms our inward parts and weaves us together in our mother's womb. And so she came to the Lord in prayer. And what I love is if you look down in verse 12, it says she continued praying before the Lord. She didn't just shoot up a little quickie prayer. She kept asking and kept seeking and kept knocking. Her passion produced a prayer that continued and continued and continued. She was a woman of prayer. Thirdly, she was a woman of promise. Look at verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, And remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. Now, what she's doing here is making a Nazarite vow. That was a vow that we read about in Numbers chapter 6, where the child was totally consecrated to the Lord. And the evidence of that was that a razor would never touch his head. His hair would just keep growing Long. There are three men in Scripture who took the Nazarite vow for life. They were Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. So she made a promise to God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you forever. And I would suggest to you that that reflects the heart of every godly woman. God, if you'll entrust me with a child... I will give him or her back to you. Fourthly, she was a woman of purity. Notice verse 12. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. Now, Eli is a pretty lousy high priest. As we read on this book, we find out that his two sons uh, were defiling the temple behind his back. 
We also find out that he was a lazy high priest because it says in verse 9, he was plopped down in a chair. The Bible specifically tells us there were to be no chairs in the temple because the priests were to be standing daily offering sacrifices to the Lord. They never had time to sit down, but he had time to plop down in a chair and just be sitting there. And obviously he's not a very discerning high priest because here comes a woman of purity pouring her heart out to the Lord and he calls for a bouncer to get her out because she's drunk. It was so rare in that day to see someone with this kind of passion and this kind of purity and this kind of prayer that he didn't even recognize it when he saw it. But she was a woman of purity. And then fifthly, And I love this one. She was a woman of patient faith. Because after she prays, notice what it says in verse 18 at the end. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hannah prays and leaves the temple, and she's no longer sad. She has a smile on her face. And she goes to Elkanah and says, can you microwave that double portion? Because now I'm hungry. Now I'm ready to eat. You say, well, what happened to her? How did her tears become a smile? How did her non-appetite become hunger? Well, her circumstances hadn't changed. She's still childless, and she's still got Penina sneering at her. So what changed? What changed is that she had given her burden to the Lord. She gave God her burden and she walked away smiling because she knew that God was going to take care of it. How about you? When you come to the Lord and pray and you say, God, here's my problem, I'm giving it to you, do you walk away in frustration? If so, That's doubt. We're to give it to the Lord. And we're to walk away with a spring in our step. Hannah cast her burden on God. And that was the end of it. And so she left it with a smile on her face. And she went to have a good steak. That's a woman of patient faith. And then sixthly, she was a woman of praise. Because she prayed, and you know the story, She got a child, Samuel. And when she got Samuel, notice what she did in chapter 2 and verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And she keeps going like this down through verse 10. Praise, thanks, exaltation. She was a woman of praise. Let me ask you a personal question. Do your children see that characteristic in you? Are you grumpy, grouchy, complaining, or are you a woman of praise? Now, let me give you the key because it's right in this passage. If you want to become a woman of praise, 
It starts by being a woman of prayer. You see, her praise was just an outflow of her prayer. She prayed, God answered, she praised. If she never prays, she never gets the opportunity to praise. You will never reach the heights of Hannah's praise in chapter 2 until you first reach the depths of her prayer in chapter 1. Are you leaving a legacy to your kids of a right heavenly relationship? Heard about a little boy who, who came on Mother's Day to church and, and he saw the, the dedication like we had today and he heard the pastor preach and the pastor said, you know, that, that uh, you should have a godly home. And so the boy was going home and he was sad in the car and they turned around and said, what's wrong? And he said, well, pastor said I should be raised in a Christian home and I want to stay with you guys. That's cute, but that's convicting, isn't it? Do you have a right heavenly relationship? Are you a woman of passion, a woman of prayer, a woman of promise, a woman of purity, a woman of patient faith, and a woman of praise? Her husband relationship, her heavenly relationship, and then thirdly, after you've got that foundation, there's her home relationship. This is in relationship to her child. And I want you to notice two things. Number one, she dedicated herself to her child. Look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel is born and she calls him by this name because this name means heard by God. So every time she called Samuel, it was a reminder he's an answer to prayer. And then notice verse 21. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Probably weaned him between the ages of two and three. But she said, I'm not going until he's weaned. And then I'm going to take him up there and I'm going to leave him forever. That's a big sacrifice in itself because the feast was a big deal in Israel. That was not just the time you went up there and came back. It was a two or three week trip. It was kind of like a vacation. You got the family all together. You went up there. You had feasts. You had entertainment. You can bet she wanted to go back because she wanted to tell everybody, I got a baby. But she makes that sacrifice and say, no, I'm going to keep him here at home. 
and I'm going to take care of him, and I'm going to nurture him until he's weaned. And then I'm going to fulfill my promise and give him back to the Lord. And in the meantime, she was nursing and nurturing him. That's a huge job. I mean, I get, get my grandkids for about five hours, and I'm ready to say, that's enough. You know, I, I've had it. A mother nurtures and cares for her child day after day after day. Irma Bombeck wrote it this way, for the first four or five years after I had children, I considered motherhood a temporary condition, not a calling. It was a time of my life set aside for exhaustion and long hours. It would pass. Then one afternoon with three kids in tow, I came out of a supermarket pushing a cart with four wheels that went opposite directions. When my toddler son got away from me, just outside the door, he ran toward a machine holding bubble gum in a glass dome. And in a voice that would shatter glass, he shouted, Gimme, gimme. I told him I would give him what for if he didn't stop shouting and get in the car. As I physically tried to pry his body from around the bubblegum machine, he pulled the entire thing over. Glass and balls of bubblegum went all over the parking lot. We had now attracted a sizable crowd. I told him he would never see a cartoon as long as he lived. And if he didn't control his temper, he was going to be making license plates for the state. He tried to stifle his sobs as he looked around at the staring crowd. Then he did something that I was to remember for the rest of my life. In his helpless quest for comfort, he turned to the only one he trusted his emotions with, me. He threw his arms around my knees and held on for dear life. I had humiliated him, chastised him, and berated him, but I was still all he had. That single incident defined my role. I was a major force in my child's life. Sometimes we forget how important stability is to a child. I've always told mine the easiest part of being a mother is giving birth. The hardest part is showing up for it each day. Hannah dedicated herself to her child, number one. But secondly, she dedicated her child to the Lord. Look at verse 24. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And we pick it up in verse 28. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. Some of us are guilty of making promises to God in the tough times. And then when things get better, we forget about our promise. Hannah was not that way. She said in the tough time, God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And she weaned him for two to three years and became so attached to him. And then one day she took him up to the temple and she turned him over to Eli for the rest of his life. Imagine that. 
had parents up here today dedicating their children. Imagine if you brought your children up and left them here. Some of you would like that. It's not an option. She dedicated him to the Lord. What's cool is that though she took him up to Shiloh and left him there, she didn't leave her responsibility. And if you look in chapter 2 at verse 19, it says his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him year to year. I can imagine a lot of prayer went into that little robe. She makes a three-year-old robe and a four-year-old robe and a five-year-old robe. Each year she's making a new robe and every stitch she's praying for her son and looking forward to the day she can take him that new robe. And then look at verse 28, chapter 1, verse 28, last phrase. Speaking about Samuel when he's between the age of two and three, it says, he worshiped the Lord there. Now, how does a three-year-old learn how to worship the Lord? Well, he had learned from his mother Hannah. He had learned on her knee what it is to be a worshiper of God, and he became a worshiper of God as well. The interesting thing is, as you read the book of for Samuel, you'll find out that Eli's sons defiled the temple, were really in ministry, but never followed the Lord. In fact, I think it says in chapter 2 and verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What's interesting is when you read this book, you'll find no mention anywhere of Eli's wife, their mom. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Samuel had a godly mother who only got a short period with him, dedicated him to the Lord, and he became a worshiper and God's man and God's generation. Eli's son, we have no mention of their mother's influence on them, and they turned out to be worthless men. Huge calling for a mother. And I would say this, it's one thing to say our children are dedicated to the Lord. It's another thing to give yourself to them and to give them to the Lord. I came across a true story that happened during the Holocaust. Solomon Rosenberg, his parents, his wife, and their two sons were arrested and placed in a concentration camp. The rules were simple. As long as they did their work, they were permitted to live. When they became too weak to work, they would be exterminated. Rosenberg watched as his own father and mother were marched off to their deaths. And he knew that their youngest son, David, would be next because he was such a frail child. So every evening, Rosenberg came back into the barracks after his hours of hard labor, and he searched for the faces of his family. And when he found them, they would huddle together and embrace one another and thank God for another day of life. One day he came back and didn't see those familiar faces. 
He finally discovered his oldest son, Joshua, in a corner sobbing. And he said, Josh, tell me it's not true. And Joshua turned to his dad and said, it's true. Today, David was not strong enough to do his work. And so they took him away. Mr. Rosenberg then asked, but where is your mother? Joshua could barely speak. And finally he uttered, when they came for David, he was afraid and cried. And so mom took his hand and went with him. That's the kind of love that Hannah had for Samuel. You don't think she wanted to spend time with that baby that she prayed and prayed and prayed for? She had him for between two and three years, and she said, I'm going to take him up and give him to the Lord. Give up all that opportunity. How are you giving your child to the Lord? Maybe there'll come a day when your child will come to you and say, God's calling me to go to China. And you'll say, well, I'd like you to be dedicated to the Lord, but not that dedicated. Not that I would not see you again, not that you might give your life on the mission field. You see, we need to give ourselves to our child when God gives us that time. And we need to give our children to the Lord because the greatest calling you can ever have is to impact generations to come. And you do that by raising godly children. I don't know how God has spoken to you today. This is not just a message for mothers. It's a message for all of us. So as we close this service, I'm going to ask that we stand as we praise the Lord together and just spend some moments with the Lord in the quietness of your heart saying, Lord, make me more like Hannah. Make me to realize that a spousal relationship is foundational and a heavenly relationship is foundational to a home relationship where I give myself to my child and I give my child to you. You'll never be able to give your child to the Lord unless you first give yourself to him. Let's make sure that's clear today as we close.